Hi, this is Jim Montague, Executive Editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com, and this is the first in our new Control Amplified podcast series. In this series, we'll be talking with different experts about important topics in the process control and automation fields and go beyond our print and online coverage to explore some of the underlying issues affecting users, system integrators, suppliers, and other people and organizations in these industries. To kick off this podcast series, we thought it might be a good idea to interview our friends at ARC Advisory Group, who researched and analyzed all the content that went into our October 2018 cover article on the Control ARC Top 50 Global and North American Automation Vendors, and maybe get beneath some of the numbers and trends, or at least get under their skin, which I'm always good at doing. Uh, With me today is Craig Resnick, Vice President and a member of the Automation Consulting Team at ARC that covers the PLC, PAC, HMI, IOT, and industrial PC markets, as well as the packaging, plastics, and rubber industries. We're also joined today by Larry O'Brien, ARC's Vice President for Research. His area of expertise is process automation on the supplier side and the upstream and midstream oil and gas industries. Well, guys, thanks for talking to us today. Hey, thanks for having us, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Okay, let's get started. Uh, first off, uh, many mainstream industries have already had a hard time transitioning from higher profit but increasingly obsolete hardware products to software and services that are more in demand but generate less revenue, even as they require more effort to produce. How do you think the top 50 is dealing with the stress of this shift and responding to it? Well, uh, this is this is Craig. Uh, I think that they've, they're doing a, a pretty good job. I mean, this is an industry that's, that's evolution, not revolution. And I think the way they're actually going about it is really trying to beef up, in many cases, their their services business. They want to be in a position where they can move from the CapEx side to the OpEx side uh, because some, uh, for some companies that's an easier way to, to help uh, generate uh, revenue and help get uh, projects approved. So uh, we're really seeing that, uh, that they really are making the transition and uh, developing those service groups. The other area that uh, I think is also helping them with the transition is their willingness to work with partners. Uh, virtually all the major companies in the control top 50 have partnership programs of, uh, of uh, various sizes, but it really helps them look at companies that do maybe a better job filling some of the gaps in which uh, that, you know, versus what they provide versus what the partners can provide. And working in a collaborative fashion, they're able to, you know, help their customer by putting together a, uh, a solution that, uh, you know, is, is, works out well for the customer and works out well for both partners. Yeah, I agree, and um, I think a lot of this is driven also by this, you know, overarching theme of, you know, what we call digital transformation, you know, which includes the adoption of new tech like IoT. So some of this stuff is stuff that we've been talking about for a long time, you know, the growth in the services business, the growth in the software business, but IoT and digital transformation has really accelerated these trends a lot, even in the past 18 months. So we're seeing a huge uh, shift in the businesses of a lot of these companies to where they're, you know, becoming primarily software companies, uh, you know, with services uh, to go with it. Um, I don't think we can say that hardware, you know, is no longer going to be a focus. I mean, I think there's always 
going to be hardware. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, maybe dumb assets, previously dumb assets that a lot of the suppliers are working to make intelligent. Uh, you know, as they buy up a lot of these types of companies, you know, things like manual, you know, on-off valves and things like that. But uh, I think the bottom line is that it's all right now driven by digital transformation and, and IoT in some way. Just, just to interject an additional question, I, I'm always kind of worried that this might be like, you know, psychologically or mentally taxing going from hardware to digitalization. You know, is there any evidence of that and, and uh, um, any ways that the top 50 have coped? Well, I, I think I think what's happened is that as um, as the needs of the marketplace have evolved, in many cases, at the control top 50, the type of people that are employed by those companies is also evolving. You know, you know, when we talk about the, um, you know, the baby boomers retiring and millennials, um, you know, filling a lot of those gaps, that is not just something that's happening at the factories and the plants. That's happening just as much at the at the control top 50 as well. And in many cases, the people who are filling, you know. Filling the roles of people who are retiring, the people that are retiring usually had that great expertise in hardware from a, you know, from a design and implementation perspective. A lot of the millennials that are taking their place really bring, you know, a great set of software skills, um, the ability to leverage a lot of the tools that are available for digital transformation, um, you know, applying low cost sensors to, uh, for industrial Internet of Thing applications. So in, in many cases, one of the things these companies are doing is by letting their workforce uh, evolve, that's helping them, you know, obviously better reposition themselves. And I would say, you know, to your question, Jim, maybe you'll eliminate some of that tension that you described of how these companies are changing. But in many cases, the evolution of the workforce is actually one of the things that's helping to change the, the culture of the company and kind of eliminate some of that st- uh, stress of change. Yeah, I agree. You, you see the culture changing. Um, and you see the, uh, you know, this is sort of how this whole convergence of IT and OT is kind of coming out in these companies. And you see more, you know, the, the IT focus and, and that convergence is happening even with the leadership. All right. So then uh, what's the uh, difference between suppliers that are genuinely developing, you know, as-a-service programs and outcomes-based uh, subscriptions? And those that maybe just look like they're doing it. Well, I, I think the thing is, is that you know all of these companies are having to evolve and make these changes because they're really being driven that way by their customer base. So th- there's really nobody within the top fifty who is um, you know who's be, who is uh, you know successfully growing that isn't making you know taking taking a various level of steps to not only reposition their companies. Uh, to be able to, um, you know, kind of, you know, provide the, uh, as, move to an as-service, as as-a-service models. But also, again, um, as I was talking earlier about partnerships, and the partnerships also extends out to the channels as well, is to make sure that the channels are evolving to be able to help the, uh, help the uh, top 50 companies be able to provide the level of service. So whether they're distributors, whether they're reps, whether it be partnerships with systems integrator companies, um, they're all making that that change because they recognize that uh, they're they're not going to be here long term if they're not evolving. And uh, you know, with with the level of communication they have with their customers, this is where their customers want them to be able to evolve 
So I think the combination of market pressures and uh, feedback from customers is having them move. I mean, Abby at different uh, at, at different level, different paces and different speeds, but they are uh, you know if you're going to be maintain your position in the top 50 list, you're you're really going to be have to be moving to various degrees to be able to provide those uh, as a service models. Definitely, and I what you said earlier, Craig, about uh, the demand from the customer side is driving a lot of this change too. So. Uh, you know, I, I think if we went back a couple of decades ago, uh, you know, the uh, the influx of, of, you know, sort of commercial off-the-shelf IT technology was just beginning. And, and my rule of thumb back then was always, oh, there's there's a 10-year lag time, you know, between when something is, is largely, you know, adopted on a large scale in the um, in the IT world versus that technology being adopted in the world of, of automation or the OT world. But that that 10 year, you know, lag time has, has compressed greatly to the point where, um, at least I, I'm seeing, I'm sure you're probably seeing it too, Craig, you know, this accelerated adoption of these new technologies, much, they're adopting these technologies much, much faster than they used to. I think a lot of this goes back to the resource uh, crisis among a lot of these end user companies. You know, they're, they're having a lot of problems trying to fill a lot of the gaps and, and replacing people, you know, that are leaving or, or retiring out and a lot of that knowledge that is, you know, just, just departing these companies and, you know, they're, they're relying more and more, um, on things like software as a service and, and, you know, sort of placing, you know, some of those burdens onto the suppliers and the third parties, you know, to, to do that for them. And that, that demand has resulted in a lot of very rapid change as well. Yeah. So, so everybody needs, uh, some comes or rollades probably, uh, at all levels. Um, you know, since we're talking about like channels and partners, digitalization then appears to be putting uh, new pressures on the long-standing distributor networks and those relationships. Is uh, you know, how's everybody dealing with that trauma? Well, I think that as uh, as the uh, customers' uh, demands have evolved and as the uh, the uh, top 50 companies have evolved. They wreck the channels have to evolve uh, along with them. You know, at one time, the channel uh, did a great job just keeping products on the shelf, you know, in the, in the world of hardware, um, you know, collecting the money and whether it's, you know, the net 30, net 45 terms and gathering the money to the, uh, to the top 50 supplier. And they served uh, at that time a vital role. But, but today, you know, especially with, um, you know, online, internet commerce, the, the role of the channel has completely changed to not only having a, a local stock that, uh, that can be delivered sometimes, uh, you know, in a matter of, in a matter of hours as needed, especially for, um, MRO when, 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 when something has failed within the plant. But, you know, as Larry mentioned earlier about the skills gap within the plant, um, and the fact that uh, many of the end users through retirements uh, don't necessarily have the, that, that skill level and technical level on the plant floor. In some cases, the channels have developed service packages of their own where they can provide that level of what I would say is some application engineering and to how to help with the uh, installation and maintenance of the product. And where so many of these products today are software-based and, you know, there's questions that come up, for example, with updates and upgrades and patches, for example. And they're really kind of taking a far more uh, consultatory role uh, with the with the end user and uh, and really providing a much stronger value proposition 
than they had for many, many years, just as I said, just being a, a local, uh, you know, local inventory and uh, somebody who would be, um, you know, collecting the funds from the, you know, for the top 50 supplier. So the role of the channel has really changed and those that have, uh, are successful and are thriving have, uh, have evolved with it. If, uh, if you're a channel that just purely wants to be a, a local shelf, and just uh, collect money for the vendor long term. I think the uh, top 50 supplier will uh, either force that channel to evolve, or their customers will force that channel to evolve, or uh, somebody else will be picking up the mantle and uh, and assuming that role. But the the day of the channel is just purely a local stock and uh, providing local stock and collecting money. Uh, those days are are uh, pretty much over, and uh, and those, the few that are left uh, will have to evolve, or they will they will cease to exist in the very near term. Okay. Um, at the risk of uh causing even more indigestion. Revenues have remained uh, relatively stable in recent years, but, you know, oh man, if, if they're forced by, you know, subscription and annuity programs to slash margins, uh, you know, earnings will undoubtedly suffer, you know. How is the I don't know if that's necessarily that? true. I mean, if you look at a lot of the big IT companies, they've already kind of moved to that kind of a model, right? They wouldn't be doing this if they didn't feel it was profitable. I think a lot of end users are adopting these types of models a lot more quick, quickly than many people thought they would. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing or will lead to, you know, reduced profitability. And I don't, you know, I don't feel a lot of indigestion this year also because, you know, the market is actually coming back. Uh, so the market's mm-hmm. pretty healthy right now. A lot of this change to subscription-based models and, and things like that is, is driven by, you know, the actual requirements, you know, of the end users that are that are demanding this. So, you know, I, I don't think this is going to lead to, you know, a more role-age-inducing, you know, business environment for the suppliers. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think this is good news, you know, for the suppliers. It, it's a change. I mean... You know, what we're seeing right now is these very, you know, these business models that have been around among many of the automation suppliers, you know, for, you know, since time immemorial are are really starting to change. You know, and that's probably the most, you know, um, indigestion-inducing part of it is is this change. But ultimately... I, I, I may be uh, speaking this, this autobiographically, maybe, because... Yeah. You know, in the publishing field, you know, uh, you know printed publications... Uh, historically would generate the revenue. You know, they always called it license to print money. And uh, whenever yeah. it went onto the web and onto the Internet, uh, you know, publications of all kinds have a very hard time monetizing uh, digital content. And when I witnessed, uh, uh, you know, many of the um, process control and automation suppliers talk about going from selling, you know, 50 hardware cabinets to, you know, one a blade server with virtual device on it, you know, I was like, oh, man, you know, people just don't want to pay for... You That's know, right, yeah, and, and clearly the, the future is not in selling, yeah, large amounts of cabinets, right? Or, or uh, you know, the old the old business model if we're going to sell a ton of I.O. And, and, you know, make our money that way, yeah. So no, that, that's changing, yeah, pretty rapidly. He's ready for that, though, it sounds like, maybe, hopefully. Well, one of the other things, Jim, is and uh, you know both both Larry and I and some of our colleagues work very closely with the financial analysts, and in many cases 
what the companies are doing when they're making the transition from saying, you know, from, from CapEx to OpEx models where they're now selling their software on a subscription basis, you know, rather than just, uh, you know, selling a bunch of licenses up front is they've conditioned the expectation from, uh, you know, earnings per share and revenues to let them know they're going through that, that process. So they, it gives them a little bit of time when they are doing their uh, quarterly earnings announcements to say, yes, we're, uh, you know, we recognize we're a little bit maybe below the, you know, the, the growth in the marketplace overall, but here's what we're doing. And then what's starting to happen is now that you're getting to the other side of the curve and now all of a sudden that they're now transferring to these subscription revenues, the financial community actually likes it because that gives them a very, very steady cash flow. Because it's much more predictable than, you know, kind of basing all your sales, you know, just based on, you know, you know, upfront CapEx sales. Exactly. Now they can very easily predict what they're going to be selling every month because typically once they get a subscriber, once they move them from, you know, buying uh, X number of seats or X number of licenses to now that the person, uh, the company that, you know, every month is now giving them a certain amount of revenue. And also, if you all look over the long haul, the the top 50 supplier that has these models makes far more money on the long on the long haul because uh you know based on selling that software it also kind of locks that customer into that vendor it makes it far more difficult to change vendors once you're doing a monthly subscription where part of that subscription is having those patches and updates and upgrades being done automatically as part of the subscription and now you, because of that you're also moving some of the maintenance and service uh, you know is now being handled by that subscription as well so they they recognize they have to it's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow for a short period of time for the vendor but uh, they know once they successfully get to the other side it actually will have very very far uh, positive uh, ramifications on their uh, top and bottom line moving forward It, it, you know, okay, I've replaced indigestion with a feeling of uh, queasiness uh, here because then really the main question is how can the top 50, you know, possibly keep up with serving, you know, hundreds of subscriber relationships and, and you know, end users that will probably number in the thousands of applications, you know, were represented maybe with digital twin simulations. How, how, can, a, how can a supplier... Isn't that too tall an order for anyone to to handle? How could they do, possibly do that? Well, I think the way that they're doing it is when I was mentioning earlier about the evolution of the suppliers, you know, top fifty suppliers' workforces. They're now hiring people that are far more digital, you know, digital savvy. And they're able to do a better job as far as being able to, in an IoT world, be able to have a much easier time to monitor all these assets. And by being able to be connected to and monitor these assets, that's really what's helping them move forward. You really, if you weren't going through the digital transformation process, if you weren't able to be able to apply, say, low-cost sensor technology and retrofit, you know, for example, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands or millions of, of rotating assets that are already installed in the field. This actually provides connectivity and it provides information from these assets that wasn't available before, whether it be things like vibration and bearing temperature, for example. 
And the thing that you can do now by being able to connect to these assets is be able to do things like asset performance management, where you're able to predict a down, you know, a problem uh, with the asset ahead of time and schedule a, do a scheduled shutdown and a scheduled maintenance to repair the asset before you move over and have a potential unscheduled downtime where uh, the company is now bleeding, uh, you know, bleeding the profits, uh, in a, you know, at a very, very fast pace. So I think the uh, the digital transformation and uh, industrial Internet of Things has really helped these companies be able to kind of move to that level so they can now be able to monitor assets uh, of all types, um, even if they're of older generation of assets, by being able to uh, to retrofit with IoT and be able to leverage that information. Many of the companies that are in the control top 50 partner with uh, cloud providers, for example, such as, say, Microsoft Azure or uh, Amazon AWS. And in many cases, that information that's coming from those assets is actually being moved to the cloud because it, this is not information that needs to be in milliseconds or microseconds. This is not real-time information that you might want to be gathering, at say, through an edge device. But this is typically information that's uh, that's being stored to make sure that the products are and the assets are are running at an optimum level and uh, problems are prevented uh, because they're um, you know we're, the the sensors are, are are letting the operators know when there's trouble and now that the businesses can then take appropriate action to make sure that asset is is repaired in a in a quick period of time uh, before there is an unscheduled downtime. Yeah, I, I think the suppliers know that uh, I think part of their success is going to hinge on their ability to manage these millions of, of data points among their, you know, hundreds and, and thousands of customers. Um, and you need a good technology platform, a good foundation in place, you know, to manage that data um, and also to make sense of that data, right? Uh, you know, what we've always said is it's, it's, it's no good unless you can take all that data and turn it into useful and, and actionable information and give it to the right person at the right time, right? Um, and that's what these suppliers have been doing over the past uh, several years in the creation of their, you know, IoT uh, platforms and, you know, as Craig said, adoption of, uh, you know, cloud technology um, and virtualization and, and so on. So, so all of these um, major technology shifts, I, I think, are, are done, you know, with an eye towards, you know, how are we going to manage uh, these millions of data points and, and make sense of them and, and also, you know, try to provide some sort of intelligence around them. Um, which is where the things like predictive analytics come in and, you know, complex modeling and, and things of that nature. So they, I think they understand, uh, this, this data issue and, and, you know, you, you can see the results as far as, you know, some of the major changes they're making to their product offerings and, and IoT platforms to do that. Oof, man. Well, I, you know, I, I guess I still need convincing. It's just, I'm just glad I'm not in charge of <laughs> A million data points, frankly. I can barely handle a, a dozen myself. Um, you know, whether, uh, you know, the, the top 50 is acquiring, you know, startups to give them those service offerings or they're maybe shedding divisions that aren't helping. You know, is there any common threads in how the top 50 is determining which strategy will work the best? I would say the common thread that the top 50 companies have are the fact that they're actually Listening to the needs of their of their customers, and that's really helping them decide, you know, what is their value proposition that they have, 
uh, you know, doing a gap analysis strategy to figure out where there, there's holes uh, in their offering, both from a hardware perspective or software perspective or service perspective, and the willingness to partner with other companies um, to kind of help help fill those gaps and, uh, you know, kind of be able to, you know, provide, you know, fully comprehensive solutions as a result of, uh, of working with the partners. Um, they sometimes, when they're doing this gap analysis, realize that maybe they want to do uh, look at some startup companies. Uh, we certainly see it in areas of, of analytics. Um, uh, Larry spends a lot of time with a lot of the cybersecurity providers and whether they want to partner with some of those companies or even pr- pursue uh, acquisition of some of these uh, smaller startup uh, cyber companies. So I think what we're finding is is that there is no single blueprint that uh, that you follow steps A, B, and C to 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 get you where you need to go. I think it's a matter of kind of like where you're already coming from, uh, talking to your customer base, and then putting together kind of a combination of a uh, of a partnership, uh, an M and A, and uh, organic development strategy uh, to kind of get you uh, where you need to go to best meet the needs of your customers. Okay. Well, Craig and, and Larry, this is, uh, again, some great an- analysis here, and I, I think we really got under, uh, you know, some of the uh, trends and, and things that were covered in the uh, Top 50 article and learned more about what makes them tick. Thanks for, for talking to us today. Excellent. Thanks for having us, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been a Controlled Amplified podcast. I'm Jim Montague. Thanks for listening.